Hello and welcome to Indie Dotes, the podcast for independent creators. Today I'm talking with um, Mike uh, Parham, who you might know as the creator of Sidekick. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Did I say all those correct? Sidekick. That's how you pronounce it, correct? That, that's right. It's just like the normal sidekick word. Yeah. Right, right, right. Like the uh, like because I look at the logo, I'm like, oh, it's a sidekick. Got it. <laughs> <laughs> it just has a Q in there. <laughs> I uh, the name originally came as sort of Rails's sidekick, uh, like Bat, like Batman and Robin. Um, oh, cool! But the the fellow who made the logo was French. And I think when he heard Sidekick, he just thought martial arts. And so his logo has nothing to do with my intention for the name. They just happen to be sort of similar words. (laughs) So that's That's kind of random how that came out. Oh, that's awesome. But when you saw what he came up with, you decided to just keep it? Yeah. I mean, I thought it was a a fine logo. Um, I didn't have anything in particular in mind. And so when he came up with that, I thought, man, that's kind of neat. Let's let's do it. (laughs) I love like a lost in translation ends up with a logo that's pretty memorable. Exactly. And it does help people know how to pronounce it pretty quickly. I mean, probably most folks within the industry would, but I'm, you know, not a developer, so maybe I'm different. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's all good. It works. Yeah, yeah, it's great. So um, uh, I'd love to talk to you a little bit more about sort of the inception, you know, uh, not, not really just of Sidekick, but sort of when it started, the tide started to turn, you know, from being an open source project that you did on the side um, to something more. Uh, sure. Well, um, I had been an open source developer, or I, I still am an open source developer. Um, but when I first started getting into Ruby, I had been a Java developer for about a decade. And open source was the natural way to hone my skills and uh, try and get a name out there so that I could find somebody to hire me. Yep. So I, I started building my own Rails app that sort of did what I wanted it to do. Uh, the first Rails app I built as an open source project um, was a uh, encyclopedia of racetracks. I happened to be into motorcycle racing at the time. And mm. so I, I started building this website, which just was a database of racetracks around the world. Um, but uh, as, I, as I worked more on that and started getting more familiar with Ruby, I started working on more open source projects uh, that other people were running and um, got more and more experience and really enjoyed it. I, I'm a creator and I love building tools. And so uh, open source uh, helps me fill that that sort of passion of mine uh, easily. So mm-hmm. I, I love open source in that regard. Yeah, so you've been working on Sidekick for how long? Uh, before, you know, like well, how long were you working on it before you maybe wanted to turn it into something more than just an open source project? When I started it, I started it with the intention of making uh, money from it. That's so interesting, because that's different than the norm in a lot of the open source projects, right? Absolutely. Um, But I had been working on so many different open source projects before that, where I had the experience to know that if I'm going to start this thing, it's going to take the next X years of my life. And I'm going to have to be providing support to thousands of people around the world. Because my intention was to build the best thing out there that that solves this problem. And so by virtue of that intent, if it succeeds, then I'm going to have thousands and thousands of users 
mm. and they're all going to need some some amount of support. And so I I started the intent knowing that if I'm going to provide years and years of support to thousands of people around the world, I've got to have money coming in the door to make this worthwhile. Otherwise, I'm doing my family a disservice. Well, yeah, and and I'm curious about that. Was there any sort of, um, you know, did you any pushback or any, you know, the the norms in the community? Did that didn't seem to affect you? It, you seemed to be able to shift your mindset over that. It didn't seem like it was a very hard decision. Or am I wrong about that? I think when I started it, around the time I started it, I also was blogging a bit about open source sustainability. Ah. And and why. Um, we consistently see the same thing happen to open source projects over and over and over. That is, they get started with much fanfare, become, mm-hmm. they become very popular, and then they shut down within, like, say, a year. Right, uh, and, and largely out of, like, burnout or something, right, or overwhelm. Pre- precisely. Um, people simply can't afford to put as much time uh, as they need to. They're a victim of their own success. Mm-hmm. And so my thought was that if this thing becomes successful, then I'm going to have people who want to become my customers, who want to pay me. And so, hmm. you know, they, they say the best way, uh, the number one rule in business is make it easy for people to pay you money. That's so, so true. <laughs> so people, people, you know, you hear all, the, all these open source developers gnashing their teeth about how they can't get any money for their projects. And yet, you know, you ask them a simple question like, where's the one-click form so they can send you money and they don't have it you know the first thing your readme should have is say i put a lot of money into this i think this project is valuable if you think so too click here and and send me uh, a couple hundred bucks or whatever Mm -hmm. Uh, and so i i like what i've done in that i sell a product for a particular price and i and i hold the line there you know, I don't allow someone to send me $5 or something right. like that as thanks. Um, if you want to use my free thing, go ahead. But if you want to pay me money, buy my product. Right, right. And uh, yeah, it's, I, I, I just, I, I love it. It's so true that uh, not allowing someone, we don't make it easy for people to give us money. That happens in a lot of businesses, right? Open source projects are not the only ones. But because I think in some ways they don't see themselves as a business, they right. probably pass over that. Yeah, I think a lot of people think that um, they. A lot of people fall into sort of the tip jar. Yeah. Um, yep. m- mindset where oh, I'm just going to put a link here where someone can send me five dollars via PayPal or support my Patreon. Um, that sort of thing doesn't work with a business. A business wants to buy something of uh, something physical, um, and I, I use the term physical, uh, figuratively here, of course, uh, right, you know, they right, want, right. they want to, they want to buy a license. They want to buy a contract of some sort. Um, even if it's just, you know, I'll provide uh, private support. Uh, if you want to send me emails, uh, ask me questions over email, uh, that that's enough of a physical thing for a business to purchase. Um, but what they're not going to do is, is send you 10 bucks a month via Patreon. It's just not going to happen. Yeah, exactly. I, I think of like, the, you know, they want you, you provide like a tangible thing. Right. That, exactly. That's exactly. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's exactly a better word. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is a confusion between di- the world we work in, right? But it's like a tangible thing, and it's such a, it's such a, it's such a great point. And so, um, for you, it sounds like you know your years of 
doing open source kind of, and you also then took a step back and got this bird's eye view about how you wanted to do it differently if you were really going to push something, and that helped get you out of the tip jar mentality. You knew that was not going to work, and right. Right, exactly. I mean, every every open source project is different. Um, not every project is going to be able to go down the same path I could. Mm. Um, namely, you know, a lot of open source projects can't make themselves into a product. Um, they are, by the necess- necessity of the way they work and the way they're designed, maybe they're a library that you have to link into your application. Um, ah. In that case, in that case, it's hard to sell a pro version of a library. Um, I'm not saying you can't do it, uh, and and certainly I would encourage people to try if that's what they want to do. Um, but but Sidekick is a major piece of Ruby infrastructure, and so by virtue of ha- me having that sort of major label, um, people are willing to pay a major amount of money for a good uh, upgrade. Right. And so that's why I can charge thousands of dollars a year for the thing that I build. Right, right. Yeah, exa- exactly. It's a, it's a really good point that not all can go down that path, though perhaps they might consider, rather than dismissing it out of hand, they might consider uh, the, a path forward for them if there is one. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I uh, wrote a couple of blog posts about my adventures here and trying to charge for my, my project um, as part of that open source sustainability uh, blogging that I did. And I yep. called them ex- I called them experiments. You know, I had no yep. idea if this stuff was going to work. Uh, my my first experiment failed, um, but the second yeah. Can one you talk actually- about the f- yeah? Can you talk about that first experiment real quick for folks who don't know? Yeah, sure. Um, when I first started Sidekick, I said I need to have a way of making money here. So um, my first experiment was selling a non-GNU license. Sidekick is licensed as a LGPL project, and I know that a lot of Companies don't like GNU licenses, and they will go out of their way to avoid them. So I sold um, a commercial license uh, as a sort of a dual licensing scheme, right? You could either uh, use Sidekick for free and get the GNU license, or you could pay me $50, and I'd give you a commercial license. Yep. And that worked to some extent. I think I sold maybe something like 20 or 30 of them. Okay. Um, but the large majority of people were saying they were only buying the license because they wanted to support me. They weren't buying the license because they needed mm. it. Isn't that interesting? It's like that difference be- where I think a lot of creators are. It's like support versus do they need it? It's it's the same Patreon tip jar kind of thing, right? People right. were effectively using that license purchase as a tip jar to me. Right. And and that's not that's not the path I wanted to go down. I didn't want pity to be the main driver for <laughs> to pay me. I wanted them to pay me because they wanted the value inherent in it. And so uh, that's when I decided to, uh, that's when I called it a failure. Because first of all, I wasn't bringing enough num- enough money to really make it worth my while. Um, I was selling maybe maybe three or four of these a month. And so you're talking $100, $200 a month. Yeah, just that's just, like pizza money. <laughs> exactly. When you're considering, I was probably spending 100 hours a month on it. Wow. That's a do- dollar an hour. Yeah, right. that's not good pay. <laughs> not compelling. So that's when I decided, uh, you know, maybe I can make a commercial closed source product on top of the open source foundation. And that turned into Sidekick Pro. And as part of that, I decided to jack the price way up uh, to $500 instead of $50. And, uh, 
And that's when I started making, uh, you know, some decent money off the project. Well, and I'm curious, how did you, so you start with the first experiment, it's not going well. How did you uh, uh, figure out that you needed to pivot or create this pro? What was the information or how did you get there? Uh, Well, people were telling me when they bought the license that, hey, I just bought this license. Thank you for your hard work. Um, We didn't buy it because we needed it. We just bought it because we wanted to support you. And and that's what, and and that combined with the fact that I was only making uh, a couple hundred bucks a month, uh, meant that if I really wanted to make, you know, some serious money off the project, that I had to um, increase the price and increase the conversion. And you had to change the the audience to a degree too, right? It's more of a be isn't the pro more of a business to business sort of play. Well, it, it's it's additional features that ah, I felt weren't necessarily critical to every single Sidekick user, but would be very nice to have if you were using Sidekick um, a lot. Ah, got it. Okay, so it was adding features uh, that that's how you got to the pro version then. Correct. More complex features that would take uh, you know a, a decent amount of time to implement if you wanted to implement them on your own. Uh, and so I, I said, you know, instead of... Uh, Instead of writing all these additional features for free and then continuing to give them away, I'll just close the source to them and 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 put them behind a paywall, yep. effectively. Yeah, and so, to figure them out, to figure out those features, did you talk to folks or, or did you already have your pulse on what you thought you might want to do for those features? I was dog-fooding Sidekick. I was using Sidekick as part of my job every day. And the company I was at was using Sidekick heavily to power all of their business processes. And so um, as I wanted more features to implement you know, more and more of the business, I simply made a call as to whether I thought this is a pro feature or whether oh. this should be baked into the free version. Cool. Oh, that's great. Yeah. So, um, and how quickly, um, for folks who aren't aware, how quickly did the pro version? How quickly did it, it? Did you see? Did it start to gain traction, and you saw that this was the right path forward? So the first quarter, I sold it. I think I, I think I opened for business like October first, and at, by the end of the quarter, like I said, I was selling it for five hundred bucks a pop, and I sold uh, seventy five hundred in the first quarter. So that's seventy five hundred, and the, the the numbers, or you mean the dollar amount? Dollar amount. So that's okay. uh, what fifteen copies in the first quarter. So that's hmm. uh, five a, five a month, let's yeah. say. Um, so you know you're not setting anybody on fire there with with the sales. You're not burning up the sales charts, so to speak. <laughs> no. um, but you know it's normal for me to see five a week now, um, mm. if not more. So uh, you know as as Sidekick has taken off and more and more businesses have uh, taken it up and, and made it part of their core business application. Um, I'm seeing more and more uh, conversion into full-time customers. Right, right. And so those early days, you, you kind of had enough information. It wasn't burning up, but you kind of had a sense that it could continue to grow and that it could become sustainable. Yeah, exactly. I. Um, I had a couple things working against me. Uh, One, uh, the project was still about six months old when I started selling the pro version. So, 
you know, you still oh. had early days in the project, right? Yeah. Um, I released Sidekick in February, and then I started selling the pro version in October. So uh, what's that? Uh, eight months, something like that. Yeah. Uh, but on top of that, um, I also had the disadvantage that nobody else was selling, you know, Ruby code. Yeah. You know, it's, it was just it was just nobody did it. So when you try and convince people to pay for something that they are used to getting for free, uh. Uh, they're going to look <laughs> at you suspiciously, right? It's an it's a huge obstacle. I mean, I'm really curious about how you got over that obstacle. Well, uh, a big part of how I got over it was I tried to be as open as possible. So all of my process was done on GitHub. It was all open source. All my issues and pull requests were all there in the open so people could see how hard or how easy I was working uh, in terms of you know closing issues, responding to pull requests, all this kind of thing. Um, I was getting more and more committers. So you know, by the end of the first year, I probably had a dozen committers working on the project and mm. sort of submitting their own pull requests to, to add whatever functionality they wanted. So I think uh, when people saw this open process and saw how, how much work there was being done on the project, I think they realized that, yeah, this is uh, a substantial amount of work and this is a valuable thing being built and therefore charging for it uh, it is perfectly reasonable. Ah, that's that's such a good approach, right? Rather than maybe try to convince them in a way, you you know, instead of like telling, you you showed them, right? You know, like opening it up. Well, and at the same time, I was doing my blogging thing. So I was also blogging about open source sustainability and how uh, we have this problem. And, and to be frank, this uh, path that I was going down was my own attempt to solve the sustainability problem. So I was practicing what I was preaching. I was, I was preaching people to people, you need to figure out a way to make open source sustainable. And in addition, here's my attempt to solve it for myself. That's so great. It's so, that's, that, that, that's really great. Um, and so... I'm curious, did you, um, how long would you say did it take for you to get to a place where it, it could provide you some reliable income? Uh, great question. So, um, you're right in that it was a side gig for the first year or so. Mm. Um, sales started to take off. Uh, they started to ramp up slowly but surely, month after month. Uh, the By the end of the first full year, that first full year that it was for sale, I made about $85,000. Okay. So that that's serious side gig money at that point. Oh, yeah. That that, that could be lots of people's salaries. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Right? I mean, <laughs> I mean you know. higher than the median average sal- uh, median uh, income in America, for sure. Right. Uh, um, and then, so at the, when I, when I realized how much it had made, uh, I got the impression that, hey, maybe I should be doing this full-time. That if this continues to grow and I continue to get hundreds of customers, I'm going to be needing to do this full-time to handle these hundreds and hundreds of customers. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to be doing them a disservice if I'm just responding to queries on nights and weekends, right? Right. So um, I started thinking about my pricing and how I was structuring things for the business for any business that I wanted to create, I should say. Uh, and, and the major issue that I had was that I was selling it as a one-time fee. Yep. So 
you know, the price was $100 one time, and then they're going to get support for as many years forward as they want to go, which is simply unsustainable again, uh, harping back onto that sustainability. Well, right, because uh, you have to keep getting cost. more and more people in there, and you may can you keep up, up with all of them? Exactly. If you can ask support questions for the rest of your life based on the $500 you paid decades ago, well, that's not really going to work. Um, so, <laughs> right. so I said, okay, I need to do this as a subscription. You know, you can ask me support questions as long as you're also paying for a subscription. Uh, and that proved to be the final key in building what most people call a, a good business. Uh, so, mm -hmm. after about uh, 15 months, I switched it over to a subscription. And uh, and settled on you know a little bit of a higher price. I went to 750, and then I went to 950, and 950 is where I've been at for about two years now. That is the price for Sidekick Pro. Uh, and so after about 18 months, um, I, I was making, I was bringing in as much money as my full-time salary was every month, and that's when you you got this sort of switch where my side gig really technically became my full-time gig. And my full-time gig became a question of why am I working 40 hours a week for somebody else's dream right. when my own thing is making me more money. Right, absolutely. So, so it, was, it was that, like, what, what happened to existing users and was there any pushback, you know, switching from the kind of model that you had? Yeah, good question. Um, it's always hard to repair these mistakes that you make, especially <laughs> yep. when that mistake involves you demanding customers to pay more money. Yep. Um, effectively, what I did was I waited another two and a half years, mm. and then I simply uh, issued a drop dead deadline where I said, um, you know, listen, you've you've had almost you know between three and four years, effectively. Uh, of free support once you once you made that one-time payment after this date I'm going to I'm going to consider um, your support finished and I I continue I, I basically issued a drop-dead date where you can continue to use the sidekick version that you are running in production right now but you won't get any more upgrades and you won't get any more support Oh, interesting. Okay. And how did so, people respond to that? that? I mean, that's a really nice way. So you gave them a long, you gave them two and a half years, and then in total they were having even more time than that. Well, well, for really what I did was I didn't say anything for two years. I just simply let them run as customers for another two years. Oh, so they were they not even aware? Right. Of the shift? Okay, got it. Correct. And then, and then, and then I gave them a six-month deadline where I said six months from now, I'm going to um, no longer allow you upgrades or support. And so what I, what I had was, uh, what I found was about 20% of people upgraded and bought a subscription. Another mm, maybe 10% pushed back and said, you know, we don't, we don't want to pay for this anymore. And then uh, the other 70% I simply never heard from again. And so that, that tells me that by waiting those two and a half years, I effectively let a lot of people churn out. And mm -hmm. they, didn't, they, didn't need, they didn't need Sidekick uh, after that, that two and a half year grace period. Uh, but 
like I said, um, what that did was get me in a good place where I know that everyone who is using my products now is paying me annually. Right. Well, yeah, absolutely. And do you, that's a whole crystal ball thing, but do you wish you would have given those two years or, 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 you know, are you happy that you gave them two years and then the six months or do you wish you would have done that sooner? Uh, great question. Uh, the question, <laughs> the ball. <laughs> yeah, the question is, is, is it better to rip the Band-Aid off quick and exactly. early? Exactly. And, and right. I'm curious, like, if you could look back, you know, what might you tell others or what, what might you do differently or would you do anything differently in the future? Well, absolutely. I would have started charging for subscription as early as possible. Mm. Um, you know, that, it, you know, woulda, coulda, shoulda, it, it's hard to say. Um, I think that the, the process that I did come, with, come up with uh, over time did try to treat my customers as fair as possible. Sure. Um, and like I said, I did give every single one of those customers the option to continue to run the version that they have in production forever. Yep. They just don't get upgrades and they don't get support. Yeah. So, so, you know, that's, that's all good and well. And the current subscription license says that you can only run it as long as you have an active subscription. So uh, people who do buy a subscription do not have the option to run it forever. Right. I mean, it so is interesting. I was, right? giving something, I was giving something very valuable to them in return for saying, I'm cutting you off. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's hard, right? When we create a project, we sometimes don't know the twists and turns, and it takes time to figure out a sustainable model. Um, exactly. Right, and 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 I, I mean, I, I love that. You know, I've worked for myself for um, twelve years, and so absolutely being a sustainable business I, I understand how critical it is I mean I love to help people but I also can't give away things for free because I have to eat um, <laughs> I mean, you know I have a dog she needs to eat um, and so you know I think it, it can definitely be challenging and it can take time to figure out what the right model is for any kind of creation yeah I, I mean I, I think of myself as a Ruby engineer or a software engineer and a Rubyist I don't mm -hmm. think of myself as a business person so Mm. Uh, nobody should be surprised that I made a bunch of mistakes when I first started this <laughs> thing. Right? I mean, I, I was sort of, uh, uh, I had the machete and I was, I was uh, blazing a trail <laughs> through the jungle. I love that. I love that. Um, I can just see you blazing the trail. Um, on my own, right? Yeah. Well, it's true, I think, for all of us. Uh, and I love that distinction that you see yourself as a, as a, you know, a Rubyist, you know, not as a business person. And that's certainly, you know, when you made the shift... Uh, from you know the, your side gig became actually your full time business, you know has did that have to change? Did your perception have to change at all? You know the idea of Ruby as to <clears throat> business person or business ideals. Do you know what, Do you know what I'm getting at? I, I certainly had to open myself up to be willing to start a business. Uh, you know that was after those eighteen months, and I, I started making more money from from Sidekick than from my full time salary. Um, I said, well, I've gotten myself into a heap of trouble here because now I've got to start a business. <laughs> um, yep. And, and it's, it, I mean, don't, don't get me wrong, first world problems, right? Uh, uh, but it's still a shift. It's still so, a shift. Yeah, yeah someone, I'm forcing myself to create a successful business, right? It's not a terrible thing. But, <laughs> but you're absolutely right. I had to think of myself in a new way. I always thought of myself as an engineer that never really wanted to start a business. And I, and I still... Um, I still have 
the the goal to never hire anybody because I don't want anyone to rely on me. You know, I don't want to have to provide someone's full-time salary on on my janky old business that I created myself, right? <laughs> so uh, so I'm, I'm still kind of I'm still kind of terrified of that thought, but. Uh, you know, we'll see what happens in the future. But once I got past the whole, hey, I need to start a business, and I started actually going through the process, it, you know, it was a painful month or two, but I got through it, and I and I learned what I needed to learn, and now I I do my I I do my bookkeeping myself, and uh, I do my sales and marketing as I need to, and you know, it's not hard. I I've learned what I need to do to get by. Wow, I mean, a month or two, painful month or two, that's pretty quick. That's awesome. <laughs> I feel like my painful time was a lot longer than that. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, I did I did have that the whole 18 months where I was growing a business, yeah. but I had the luxury of doing it on the side. Um, and I, I really point. didn't I really didn't take much risk in that I I was, you know, it was nights and weekends that I was really um, investing into to building this this project and and the commercial products on top of it. It is true that the experience of working for yourself can really uh, shift depending on how it happens, right? Like building yours on the side. I've often, you know, I started my first business in the middle of an economic downturn in an industry nobody knew anything about. So, I mean, I definitely started it the hardest way. Um, (laughs) Like, you know, I'm not the smartest person in that regard, but it made it work. You know, I mean, I'm I'm still here and it's had lots of iterations and and pivots. Um, There's no business that... uh wasn't started with mistakes, right? It's so I true. Mean, it's such a good point. <laughs> you, you know, every every business is going to have mistakes, and you gloss over them. The successful businesses gloss over those mistakes, but um, the 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 unfortunate businesses die due to those mistakes. Uh, but every yeah. business has them. They do, right? They, absolutely. I think even every project has them. You know, sure. um, they, they 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 have them. I, I'm a big fan of just like, yeah, I made a lot of mistakes. Here's the all the wrong ways you should not do this. <laughs> <laughs> I, am, I am no bastion of perfection uh, by any means. I'm, I'm a business superhero, and I never make mistakes. <laughs> exactly. Right. Put on your suit. Yeah. When they write a book about my life, make sure they they <laughs> tell people that. Who is that best business person in the sky? Exactly. Oh my gosh. Well, I have another question about, so so you you said something about, you know, you transitioning um, into running the business full-time, leaving your job, um, you know, learning how to do the accounting and all that stuff or taking care of it. I'm curious about marketing and sales because I feel like that's one area that a lot of folks, uh, software folks and particularly open source folks seem to struggle with. Um, I don't know if it's like a mindset issue or they don't know how to do it. And I'm, I'm curious because you have a fairly, I mean, I've read, I've, you know, from what I can tell you, you have a fairly simple uh, marketing path. Uh, but I'm curious how you came up with that and how you, you know, whether you had any issues with, you know, marketing or do you, you know what I'm getting at, I hope. Right. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I, I, I understand what you're, what you're getting at here. Um, so I look at, Sales and marketing is having sort of two approaches. You can, uh, when you're when you're selling developer tools, I'm speaking just of developer tools here, but um, you can extend it to sort of any other vertical um, as a, as appropriate. But in terms of developer tools, you can attack one of two markets. You can you can sort of approach the high level CIO executive, VP of engineering, and try and sell them at a high level the the tool that improves their business. Yep. 
or you can approach the individual contributors, the developers, the engineers, yep. and you can sell to them and they will bring your pitch to the people with the credit cards. Yep. Now, the advantage of the first one is that the the price you can charge is much higher. Right. You know, you don't want to get a VP in, in involved or a CIO or a CTO involved unless you're talking a five-figure, six-figure deal. Right. Um, and but that but that's the kind of price point that's necessary if you have a VC-backed business. Now, what I have is a very lean operation, and so I can afford to market to individual contributors, to those engineers. And so that's what I do. I stick to talking to my fellow developers in the language that they understand, providing APIs and tools that solve the problems that they are trying to solve. And by doing that, they see, oh wow, uh, I need this tool, let me ask the boss if we can buy this. Mm -hmm. and, and that's really where the bulk of my sales come from. So I, I try to focus on my open source users and, uh, and convert them into customers. And those open source users are the developers that are using Sidekick. So that, I mean, you know, did you, was it hard for you to understand, like to think, like how, what was your understanding of marketing? Had you studied marketing before? Had you done marketing? Because that's, the way you're breaking it down really makes a lot of sense. But if someone hasn't done it before, that might not seem obvious. Oh no, I have never done any marketing before in my life. Uh, what, what, what you're getting is, uh, is more survivor bias. I mean, as I've become successful and I've thought about how I'm doing this, uh, I'm sort of retrofitting a game plan onto what just sort of organically grew out of me trying to make money off this project. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, I had an open source project and by virtue of that, you have to talk to your users and convert them into customers. And those users are developers. And so uh, what I've realized over time is that I'm talking to those individual con contributors and they don't necessarily have a credit card and so they don't have a big budget. So you have to keep your price low. And that's why you're talking uh, $1,000, $2,000, $5,000 uh, at the most. Um, because beyond that, you really have to start to get the, uh, the higher-ups involved. And, and when you get higher-ups involved, they want to see holistic, overall, uh, you know, game-changing tools for the entire business. They don't yeah, want to see yeah. an, a, a, spot, a spot tool where they're paying. You know, you don't want to get the CTO involved when you just tell them, hey, I want to buy a better drill. Right, right. And, it's and a great, so, great metaphor. Right. Uh, you know, a CTO wants to buy an entire workshop. He doesn't want to buy an individual better tool, even if you're just selling a really, really awesome drill. Right. Right, because how does it fit into the rest of his tool chest? Exactly. And the and, and rest of his workshop, what, what, right. what, what's there? Right. And so the way that you, uh, you know, here's my understanding about how you market uh, Sidekick. You basically go to Ruby and uh, Rails Comp each year. And you hang out, hand out a stickers, right? Meet up with yep. folks, hand out stickers. Um, you know, I, I've also heard, you know, from, from kind of knowing a little bit about you, it seems also the marketing plan, there's a little bit about there about offering value, making sure that you're really adding value and listening to your users. Well, uh, my marketing is, is solely around Sidekick. It's just getting yeah. people to use Sidekick. Um, and then as they use Sidekick, 
they'll realize, oh, well, I need this additional feature, or I need this original API, this uh, additional API. Oh, and Mike happens to sell that. Uh, well, so why, why should I? I can I can either roll it myself or I can simply buy it, and and uh, that it's 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 the age old question of buy versus build. Mm. You know, should we build it ourselves and spend uh, you know weeks of developer time on something that we're going to have to debug, we're going to have to bug fix over months, or do we just buy the thing that's already built? And so that that's that's really my marketing is just promoting the use of Sidekick promoting it as a great tool for scaling Ruby applications, Ruby and Rails applications, and then getting people to see the value in paying for the additional um, feature packs on top of Sidekick. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I'm, uh, I just, I'm going back to like, so then how did people discover Sci How do people discover it, let's say in early days? <laughs> Why are you chuckling? Well, uh, no, I mean, it's a great question, right? Um, you know, if you build it, they won't come unless they know about it, right? <laughs> right, I'm like, well then wait, I get, I get that, that you're planting the garden in your heart, you know, like there's the idea that there's like hunters and gatherers in the sales yeah. world. Like, and so then I'm like, how did the, how, how, what was the hunting part of this? How did people, how did you make sure people discovered it in the first right. place? Early well, that's, that, that goes back to the organic growth, and that goes back to evangelism of all uh, you know of anything. You you mm. how how do uh, how do you spread religion, right? You convert people, and then they tell their friends, and they tell their friends, and and so that's really all evangelism is. Is I started blogging about Sidekick. I at the time had a a reasonably popular blog. Uh, in the Ruby world, and so other people started using Sidekick and started seeing that it was better than the tool that they were currently using. Mm. And so they switched over, or they started their new project using Sidekick, uh, and then they took it to the companies they were working at, uh, and then they quit and went to new companies and said Sidekick is the yep. best thing to use there. And so it, it it grows organically. You know, you see that fifty hundred percent growth. Uh, year over year, and so my sales have seen fifty to one hundred percent growth year over year, based on that that organic uh, growth. Yeah, which is pretty wonderful. That, that yeah, it's just it's just fabulous. just purely evangelism over uh, through my blog, through uh, trying to support it as best I can. Mm -hmm. You know, people people appreciate that, and they they tell their friends, um, both good and bad. That's <laughs> true, right? right? Yeah. So you treat you treat people with respect. You you try and solve their problem as best you can, but then you also make it clear to them that hey, I got to charge money for this thing. I can't give it away for free, and that's not being disrespectful for them. That's not um, telling them off. That's simply um, being realistic. Yeah, it's such a good point. It, it's something I know that has really vexed a lot of open source projects. Right, the, this whole idea of uh, that, that, that boundary line and how to make it make, sustainable. I just think, it, I, you know, I, I was so, like I said, I was so excited to have you on today because I feel like you're one of the projects that has really been able to show them a path for this, right? What that, what you started talking about, you know, years ago, you wanted to really advocate for open source, you know, having a sustainable model for, for a business. I feel like you've done that pretty successfully. Well, you know, the, the, the regret is simply that my path um, 
had to deviate from open source, right? Mm, I, I have to sell yeah. closed source um, yeah. extensions on top of the open source. Um, and that, that simply goes back to you've got to force people to pay money for the value that they're getting. And, yeah. and, that, pe- and that otherwise it's a charity. Right. You know, uh, when you get something for value for free and, and people ask that you donate, that, that's a charity. And that's really the difference between me and, and like patrons and tip jars is, is those are charities. Mm. That's a really good point, right? Charity versus a, versus a business or something sustainable. Right. And, and you, can, you can talk about um, sort of B corporations, which are, you know, a benefit to society at large. Uh, there's some interesting thoughts around maybe open source uh, projects could become B Corps or, um, mm. you know, benefit cooperatives and that sort of thing. But at the end of the day, um, you have to lead people to pay money for the value that they're seeing, mm-hmm. especially especially if your tool is targeted to um, businesses with lots of money. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow, such a great point. I, I guess I, um, my last question is, what, uh, what advice might you give someone who, you know, is kind of currently with a project they're, that they're wondering about how they might follow your model or what a next step is? Or... Um, that's I know, a, it's probably that's... a huge question. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm struggling because there's not really a great answer. Um, every mm. project is different, like I said. Um, I had the benefit of having this sort of um, position where I'm a major piece of infrastructure for business apps. And so it, it's somewhat natural for me to demand a decent amount of money for a better mousetrap, so to speak. Um, you know, every open source project will be different. And so you, you need to think about um, how is the user getting value from your project? and how can I possibly in, entice the customer into into paying for for more more value? Um, that's that's great advice, actually. But I that's, but I w- a- but I wish I you know the the first step is just even thinking about the problem, you know, mm. is 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 recognizing the burnout problem, and saying I need to do something different, because the natural easy path is to not charge people anything and to simply get burned out after a year or two. Well, yeah, ha- I am curious, have you ever gotten to a place of burnout in your career or was it just something you saw other people go through and you were like, I never want to go through that? Well, I think everybody gets burned out at various jobs. You know, you'll work at a job for a couple of years and then you'll just say, I'm not learning anything anymore. Um, the people I'm working with aren't, aren't necessarily... Um, making me want to come to work every single day anymore and mm-hmm. and that's the those are signs of burnout and so something needs to change there and so you can either you can either change your organization or you can change your organization right? <laughs> so to right. speak yeah I, I i totally get that well and i think there's like burnout and then there's people who just like walk away burn it all down right <laughs> that that kind of burnout is yeah, and that's and I've I've had that with open source projects where I've I've said, um, listen, I don't want to maintain this anymore. Does anybody else want to take over this project? Mm. And and thankfully, I've had a number of people step up to take over old projects that I decided to uh, to give away. 
but I've, I've still got a, a handful of things that I maintain. Mm. Uh, but uh, cool. those are usually still passion projects that I uh, I love all equally, <laughs> <laughs> e- even if only one brings me in most of my money. Right, right. It's so great. I love that we're uh, we kind of started with the uh, the notion of you know burnout, and we're actually coming back around to ending around on on burnout and and trying to avoid that. Um, so thank you so much for being on the show today. I really enjoyed hearing more about your journey and how you uh, handled uh, you know different inflection points. You're welcome. I'm uh, I'm happy to talk. <laughs>